Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We recently released a nearly hour-long episode about our responses to the movie version of Hamilton on Disney+, and we're currently working on an episode about Gina Prince-Bythewood movies, starting with the new Netflix action feature, The Old Guard. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us! Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias. Keith won't be joining us this weekend. He tells us he looked out of his house and he saw a shadow, so he's staying inside for the next six weeks. That does not make much sense to us, since it's summer and we all have shadows, and we're all still quarantined and podcasting from home anyway. But we're not going to argue with superstition. In his place, however, we have a special guest we're very excited to welcome on the show. Emily Vanderwerf, our longtime co-worker from back in the AV Club days, now Vox's critic at large. Emily, we are so glad to have you here with us. Hello, everybody. It's so good to see all of you. <laughs> and Zoom means we're actually seeing you, which is fun. Yes. Yes, I can look at all of your lovely faces and <laughs> Zoom backgrounds. Uh, and we're, I, I have a groundhog behind me, not to spoil what we're talking about, but people probably saw it in like the title of the episode. So People don't look at the title of the episode as often as you'd think, so... <laughs> I don't know. We got some compliments on our our last episode titles. Pretty good. Yes. uh, um, I'm very happy to be joining you. We have a rich and long history uh, at the AV Club from my many years recapping 15 shows a week uh, and slowly (laughs) driving myself around the bend. Oh, man. If you had that all to do over again and over again and over again, you know, in some sort of (laughs) thematic way, I wonder if you'd make those choices. But Mm -hmm. let's get into that in a minute. I I actually do kind of want to know what day of recapping you would you would rec- you would repeat uh, probably a sunday because uh i would get to re-recap you know shows like madman or game of thrones or things like that were always they were really fun to cover and they were often the shows that like i got the most let me put it this way madman we never got screeners for because matt weiner is a just a tremendous control freak so it was always a race to try to be the first one to post. And I feel like if I was stuck in a time loop, I could just memorize a recap and just type it <laughs> and have it up in like 15 minutes. I think it would be really impressive. If nothing oh else, gosh. just to make Matt Weiner angry. Yeah, absolutely. And just to get one over on Alan Seppenwall. You know, it's all all we try to do here. So. Well, that's really what uh, magical time loops that make you become a better person are about, is getting one yeah. over on Alan Seppenwall. Ex- I mean, exactly. Yeah, like that. there's a loophole in the become a better person clause that's like, yeah, but if you can get one over on Alan Seppenwall, you got you to gotta do that. All right, let's pull this show back onto the rails. <laughs> With American movie theaters largely closed, we're continuing to focus on quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're going to be discussing a pair of comedies that almost literally share DNA. One launched a series of tropey followers. One of them is one of those tropey followers. They both center on a familiar plot device that we've been referencing endlessly. <laughs> Genevieve, you okay? I'm just so bored. I think this is about the 5,000th time I've heard you read the same script, and I've run out of ways to make it interesting for myself. Wait, what? We've never done this pairing before. 
Genevieve, are you caught up in one of those time loop things we've heard so much about? Oh, one of those. Yeah, those are rough. My sympathies. Eh, they're not so bad if you get on a good day or if you have a personal project you've been wanting to work on. On my last time loop, I got really good at baking sourdough bread. I used my last time loop to finally finish reading War and Peace, the annotated version. Okay, you two are going along with all of this pretty fast. I, I'm not sure I buy into it at all. This, this could all just be an elaborate, elaborate prank. prank. If I, I think, think you, you might, might just be messing with me. Wait, what, what are you, you doing, Genevieve? Genevieve? Oh, okay, okay, that's, that's weird. weird. Okay, okay, you, you can, can stop, stop that now. Batman. Exploding aphrodisiac alarm clock. Scott Tobias secretly loves burrito lettuce. Okay, fine. I'm convinced you're going through a time loop. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sucks to be you. Sorry you're bored. Uh, is there anything we can do to help? Not really. This is usually where you ask me to tell the listeners which films we're talking about this week, and I amuse myself by reading your script in some increasingly bizarre way. I've been adding some new versions to the routine, so today you get your choice. I can either read our plans for the week while simultaneously playing Flight of the Bumblebee on Nose Flute, or sing that part of the script to the tune of You'll Be Back from Hamilton, complete with a Jonathan Groff signature spitting. Or I could recite it all from memory while juggling flaming chainsaws. Okay, that all sounds like kind of a lot. Maybe we'll just have Emily read it instead. Emily? Oh, that Hamilton one sounded kind of fun. But sure, I thought you'd never ask. Harold Ramis' 1993 comedy Groundhog Day popularized what's become a popular cultural trope, the idea of a person magically stuck in a period of time that keeps resetting and endlessly repeating. Bill Murray stars as Phil, a shallow, egotistical Pittsburgh weatherman on a field trip to the small town of Punxsutawney, where he's supposed to be covering the annual Groundhog Day ceremony. But then, he wakes up the next day, and it's still Groundhog Day, and no one but him knows that everything he's experiencing has already happened. First, he tries to exploit the loop to put the moves on his producer Rita, played by Andy McDowell. Then he desperately tries to break the loop. Then he eventually relaxes into it and starts living his best life. In the new Hulu movie Palm Springs, audiences first meet beer-swilling slacker Niles, played by Andy Samberg, as he's deep into the apathy and nihilism stage of a similar repeating day phenomenon. Then he's joined by Sarah, played by Kristen Milioti, who's having a bad day for initially unclear reasons as she endures her sister's wedding. As it turns out, time loop stories run very differently when there's more than one person in them. But Palm Springs matches Groundhog Day both in its balance of comedy and romance, and in some of its messages about what it takes to live a meaningful life. It's two comedies about time anomalies and how they teach us to appreciate the present, the consequences of our actions, and our own growth and development on this edition of The Next Picture Show. Okay, Genevieve, how was that? Eh, not bad, I guess. Emily, I still think your 49th read-through of that bit was my favorite, and I'm still kind of bored. You want to borrow my copy of War and Peace? Sure, I'll try anything once. Well, it's Groundhog Day, again. At first, he was a little anxious. Bill, where? Will you be checking out today, Mr. Collins? I'd say the chance of departure is 80%. But now, we could do whatever we want. He's discovering the possibilities. Don't you worry about cholesterol? Why? And living life mm. like there's Phil? no tomorrow. Phil Connors! Ned! Because there isn't. I am an immortal. I have been stabbed, shot, burned, frozen, electrocuted. I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. He's out of his gourd. 
But to get what his heart wants most... What are you looking for, Phil? A date for the weekend? ...means living this day over again <laughs> till he gets it right. Believe it or not, I studied 19th century French poetry. <laughs> what a waste of time. I studied 19th century French poetry. La fille qui You speak French. Oui. Bill Murray. Andy McDowell. To the groundhog. I always drink to world peace. Well, what should we drink to? I like to say a prayer and drink to world peace. There's a particular formula for American redemption comedies that keeps cropping up in cinema, where some shallow jerk of a character is cruising along, unaware of his shallowness and jerkiness, until some supernatural contrivance gets in his way and forces him to reevaluate his life and discover the value of basic humanity. There have been a few female variants in the formula, but in the heyday of the American version of it, from the late 1980s to the early 2000s, the jerk was invariably a man, often either a callous businessman, an absentee father, or both. When the big magic plot contrivance enters his life, maybe at first he thinks it's a fantastic convenience, like Adam Sandler with his magic time-controlling remote control and click, or Eddie Murphy with his daughter's magic blanket and imagine that, or Mel Gibson with his mind-reading and what women want. Maybe the protagonists refuse to believe what's happening at first and make a lot of big comedic mistakes, like Jim Carrey with his inability to lie and liar liar, or Eddie Murphy again with his magic tree in a thousand words. Or maybe, like Phil in Groundhog Day, played by Bill Murray, they go through every grief phase in the book in rapid succession, but not necessarily in order. For Phil, a selfish, shallow TV weatherman operating out of Pittsburgh, the annual mandatory trip to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania for the Groundhog Day celebration is hellishly boring and beneath him. When he suddenly starts waking up every day to I Got You Babe on his bed and breakfast clock radio and finding the timeline has reset and it's still Groundhog Day, he zips straight from denial to acceptance, or at least a manic sort of acceptance that sees him doing crazy things with no consequences. Then he jumps to a form of bargaining, trying to use his reset ability to learn all about his new producer, Rita, in an attempt to mount the perfect seduction. A thousand face slaps later, he goes through anger and depression, including a string of suicides that don't break his loop. Finally, he starts making the most of his time, learning to play the piano, getting to know the people around him and helping them, and crafting what appears to be a perfect day out of being exactly where he's needed. Jerked him averted, he finally wins Rita's respect and breaks out of the loop. Groundhog Day didn't invent the time loop genre. Credit for that often goes to The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, a 1965 Japanese novel that's been adapted for the screen multiple times in its home country, both in live action and animation. Where Groundhog Day screenwriter Danny Rubin does innovate with the story is infusing it with that familiar jerk-cured-by-magic contrivance trope. For the origins of that one, we can look back to an even older story, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. If Dickens didn't invent the idea of a selfish grouch bedeviled by the supernatural until he mends his ways, he certainly popularized it and provided a future model for it, and it's been revised and updated a hundred times in different ways, including in Groundhog Day. It's even easier to see the links between Groundhog Day and Christmas Carol if you step back a few years from Groundhog Day and look at 1988's Scrooged, an overt Christmas Carol update also starring Bill Murray in a very similar role as one of those cold businessmen who needs to learn humanity. It's worth wondering whether Bill Murray ended up in the starring role in Groundhog Day because of his very similar work on Scrooged. In various published oral histories and looks back on Groundhog Day, the topic hasn't come up. But Rubin, the screenwriter, has said that he was unpleasantly surprised when the director, Murray's longtime friend and co-conspirator Harold Ramis, cast Murray as the lead in the film. 
Rubin had apparently imagined this as a more serious movie, as suggested by some of the grimmer elements. And given what he calls the, quote, adolescent, popcorn-chomping, Saturday afternoon comedy, unquote, movies that Ramis and Murray had worked on together in various capacities, including Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, and Stripes, Rubin expected his film to be dumbed down for the Saturday morning masses. But ultimately, Groundhog Day is a pretty emotionally intelligent film. The comedy works, thanks to enthusiastic performances from people like infinitely present bit player Stephen Tobolowsky as Ned Ryerson, the insurance salesman, and Chris Elliott as Rita and Phil's cameraman, and even Michael Shannon in a small role as a young man who's about to get married to a woman he's fighting with until Phil comes along to fix things. More importantly, the fantasies in Groundhog Day work. There's the fantasy of having enough time to finally get everything in your life absolutely perfect. The fantasy of finding a soulmate and ending up with them. The fantasy that some sort of benevolent force is looking down on the world, forcing jerks to confront their own flaws, no matter what it takes. Groundhog Day is packed with tropes borrowed from earlier stories, and later stories borrowed heavily from it in turn. But it still feels fresh today because it's such a compelling story. No one wants, as Phil puts it, to be stuck in one place where every day is exactly the same and nothing you do matters. Groundhog Day is about finding an ideal life and breaking out of all the loops that contain us. It's also about not being a jerk. What could be better than that? This is Doris. Her brother-in-law, Carl, owns this diner. She's worked here since she was 17. More than anything else in her life, she wants to see Paris before she dies. Oh, boy, what a... What are you doing? This is Debbie Kleiser and her fiancé, Fred. Do I know you? They're supposed to be getting married this afternoon, but Debbie is having second thoughts. What? Lovely ring. This is Bill. He's been a waiter for three years since he left Penn State and had to get work. He likes the town, he paints toy soldiers, and he's gay. I am. <laughs> this is Gus. He hates his life here. He wishes he stayed in the Navy. Well, I could have retired on half pay after 20 years. Excuse me? Is this some kind of trick? Well, maybe the real God uses tricks. You know, maybe he's not omnipotent. He's just been around so long. He knows everything. So normally we kick these things off with uh, what's your history with the film? What's it look like today? I want to start this one differently. Rewatching this film, what struck me more than anything is how little time it takes Phil to just completely start doing crazy things. It is day three that he starts driving on train tracks towards an oncoming train and gets himself arrested uh, just doing ridiculous stuff. So my question to you is, if you were stuck in a, a recurring time loop, how long would it take you before you started doing incredibly irrevocable, dangerous things where if the loop stopped, they would have immense consequences? Well, I mean, I think it's important to note that we would all know immediately that we were in a time loop because we've seen so many movies and television shows dealing with time loops. So I, I would say day one, we'd be like, oh, okay, this is what's happening. For me personally, I don't think I'm a destructive, confrontational enough personality to go right to just absolute mayhem. I think I would like go to the gluttony phase first and just like... <laughs> eat all the things, do all the drugs, just everything that could harm my body, I would just do right up front and get it out of my system. And then I don't know if I would ever progress to the like destructive mania stage, but I don't know. I think I would kind of enjoy it for at least the first bit. What about you guys? I would kill being stuck in a time loop. Like of all the fantastical <laughs> movie premises, this is one I would absolutely nail. Like I do think like I would have, I'd probably get there within a few months, but I would spend the first several months being like, okay, to get out of a time loop, you have to better yourself. So I would just be like working on, you know, 
minor things I don't have the time to do right now because I have to work and stuff. But if you're stuck in a time loop, you can blow off work. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, I would do that. The one thing I might not do would be the inevitable self-harm sequence because I would be terrified that the reason I was stuck in a time loop was because the universe was just done with me and like wanted me (laughs) to be gone. And uh, then I would prove it right. So yeah, there's enough variance on the time loop Mm -hmm. model out there that you can't be totally sure which type of time loop you're caught in. Yeah. Wow. I think I'm on board with the gluttony thing a little bit. That sounds pretty good. I mean, I'm thinking of almost like the uh, world of defending your life. You know, I'd get like nine pies, right? <laughs> One for every day that I'm in the time loop. I'm a pretty peaceful person, so I don't really see myself getting too violent, but I might get bored after a while. So uh, who knows? I feel like I'm in the same place. I, I know that you can't predict what you would do under extraordinary circumstances. But I mean, we're all in extraordinary circumstances now. I'd like to some degree being in quarantine does feel like being in a time loop where every day is the same and nothing you do matters. And I've mostly responded to that by reading a lot more. So I I can see myself spending the first 20 years in a time loop just like reading. (laughs) Uh, I I totally go see uh, Vertigo over at Music Box right now. (laughs) In 70 millimeter. I haven't been doing that out of an abundance of caution, but I assume that, you know, I can't bring COVID into uh, the time loop. So I'd go. I mean, yes, but all the people who aren't stuck in the time loop are going to get COVID from you. And then like, it's going to be a parallel universe where you've spread it to all these people. I, I actually answering this question is easy because we are stuck in a time loop right now. So what I would do is like on day five, I would totally freak out and start crying. Uh, and then like day 10, I would start doing every project at once and like start reading War and Peace and start several podcasts and start a sourdough starter. Like I, that's what I would do in a time loop. <laughs> so I have that answer. I think I would probably spend a good hundred days of the time loop just like doing weird stuff to my hair and letting it reset every day. <laughs> This is great. This should have just been a, a Patreon. Like, let's let's just talk about what we do in time loops for like an hour. Yeah, we're swerving slowly back to the film itself. Well, I mean, what do you think about how Murray spends his time loop? I one of the things that struck me as I was putting together the keynote and thinking about this trope of weird supernatural occurrence that punishes somebody for being a jerk is the fact that it always happens to men. At least, uh, like, sort of the classic era of these movies. And I wondered if that's not for a couple reasons. One, it was an era where cinema was very uncomfortable about female characters that you might not like. There weren't nearly as many uh, kind of immature, unlikable female characters who needed to fix their lives. There were also weren't as many female-led movies. So having like an entire film revolve around the inner life of a woman wasn't something that came up a lot in the 80s. But on top of everything else, they go to comedians for this kind of thing. Because the first response to Weird Supernatural Hoobajoo is like act out in big comedic ways. And there was not a female equivalent of Jim Carrey that I can think of like operating in the 80s, 90s. So these films do end up being like conceptually a little samey, but to my mind, at least, Groundhog Day like stands out above all of them. It's just, it's crafted better. It's more interesting. And Bill Murray is maybe a more appealing presence than a lot of those characters. I'm curious how all of this plays for you in 2020. And like, what do you think about watching the movie now and particularly about Murray in this role? 
I mean, I love this movie. <laughs> in fact, I've seen it so many times, I didn't necessarily need to see it for this podcast. But we, we watched it on one of our uh, family movie nights that we've been having during quarantine with the girls, which is another thing I really like about the movie, uh, that um, it's for everyone. It's a PG movie, I think. Maybe PG-13, but PG. It's PG, Everybody yeah. can watch it. Yeah, PG, right. So, so it's for the family. And it kind of reminded me, it's almost the only film of its era or that I can think of that feels as strong as the type of studio comedies that were made you know on a script level uh, as sort of the heyday of studio comedies of like the of like the 30s and 40s because the bones of it are so strong you know so you have all of that you have just this really ingenious well worked out script it gives so much and it's so sturdy and then you can put on top of it you know something that is modern which is somebody like Bill Murray who has improvisational skills and has the ability to riff a little bit. And those two things in combination are just magical, I think. I think it's such a funny movie, and there's just so much to think about uh, with that premise. you know. And it plays great now, as it always did. Yeah, I mean, Emily already mentioned this sort of like quarantine element of you know, watching it in, in 2020 and how that is, is going to inform it. And this movie has definitely come up uh, just in the conversation uh, over the past few months. Just it's a, a very handy symbol of what we're going through. But this is also a, a movie I love. I've seen more times than I can count. I did rewatch it for this because I do my homework. But <laughs> but I also watched it with the whole household, you know, so I definitely back you, back you up there as far as it being sort of a intergenerational crowd pleaser. But what struck me as different this time was the romance between Phil and Rita, which I had kind of like in my mind over the years had blurred into just like the conclusion of it. I forgot about the whole earlier part where he basically tries to trick her into sleeping with him. And there's that really uncomfortable bed and breakfast sequence where he brings her back to his room and he's like really pressuring her. And that reads very differently today than it did when I was a kid watching this movie and seeing scenes similar to that in movies that were coming out around this time and earlier where that was just sort of something that was used as a comedic beat. And watching it now, it definitely made me more uncomfortable than than it has before. And I don't think it really ruins or even changes the movie in a really fundamental way, because we are meant to understand that Phil is a callous jerk still at that period. And it does set up his redemption of what winning her over actually means later in the movie. But I admit that until this rewatch, that part of it had kind of just turned fuzzy and nebulous in my mind. And it really came back in sharp relief on this viewing. Yeah, it's kind of just painted as quirky behavior, you know, like, like not good behavior, but Mm -hmm. also not like, you know, overly bad behavior. (laughs) Yeah, not like assault. It's just like, oh, he's a bad guy. He's doing a bad thing. And the music goes boop, 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 boop. I love Frank Capra, Preston Sturgis movies Mm. like that. And this movie feels very in conversation with those films in a lot of ways. And what I realized was the American small town movie kind of is hard to make now because we don't believe in these idyllic small towns anymore. And the reason this one works, and I'd have to think about it, but it might be the last like truly great one, is because it brings this outsider from the big city into this small town and then traps him there and forces him to live by its values. And 
in 2020, when the American small town has largely fallen apart, when we're sort of sitting on the edge of, you know, any number of incipient disasters and, and ways the world could completely collapse, and one we're living through right in the moment, the idea of being trapped in a town that idyllic, being trapped in a place where people care about each other, where, you know, Ned Ryerson is is a little overbearing, but ultimately friendly, like there's there's an alluring escapist element to that that i'm sure was was the case in the 90s but plays so much more potently now like there is a there's a real longing within me to go back to a space like this and yet a space like this you know has never existed and now really doesn't exist (laughs) there is a degree to which the portrayal of the small town in this movie reminds me of The Last Seduction and uh, Linda Fiorentino's character Wendy being a a big New York City girl who ends up stranded in a stray town and then she's just like, she's I want to say a shark among sheep do sharks typically prey on sheep? Like that's that's one of their big Sharknados uh, do. Oh yeah, so she's like a, a Sharknado in uh, the middle of a sheep pasture. There's just there's something about the kind of like like amiable gullibility of the small town that enables Phil to just kind of work his way through it. You know, when he he finds a woman in the diner, that's like, yeah, sure, I can seduce her with uh, well, basically three words. Like he he doesn't even bother finding out what that teacher was like anything else about her it's it's pretty much just name school uh teacher's name and then the next thing we know he's he's in bed with that lady and it's just because everybody in that town seems so like cheerfully dumb we're so used to kind of the last seduction model where it feels like you know new york city is kind of kind of the the bastion of, of fierce toughness and then the small rural town is where like everything goes slower and and everybody is softer and more naive because they can afford to be the fact that here the big tough city is pittsburgh is near as <laughs> we can tell kind of cracks me up to be honest the other i think appeal to this film um the fantasy of it i guess is that it takes place in in a literal moral universe right i mean it's it's a place where you are ultimately rewarded for being good i mean what's more comforting than that that if you make the right decisions if you act nobly if you you know are there with a car jack when (laughs) when the tires go flat or you're there you know, if you know, giving people the Heimlich maneuver and saving them from falling from trees and doing all the things that he ends up doing, and ultimately behave selflessly rather than push yourself on somebody as as he does with Rita at the bed and breakfast, there's a reward for that at the end of the line. And we you know, we'd like to think that, you know, karmically speaking, that you know the good that we put out in the world is going to come back and uh and reward us in some way. And um, this is a movie that um, is all about that. Emily, I know you kind of come from some of the same conservative religion family background that I do. I'm curious how much this played for you like like a Christian fable, like a, a morality play fable where the implication isn't just karma, isn't just some sort of like general benevolence in the universe, but specifically plays as like, it's like he gets sent to purgatory, effectively. It's mm-hmm. like some form of source is conscious of his misbehavior and like actively wants him to become a better person and rewards him when he does. I don't know if that's in any way baked into the film or it's just my background. How did you translate that? You know, when I saw this as a kid in the conservative church, certainly we really 
stretched ourselves to apply religious readings to anything we possibly could. Um, I remember my father telling me The Little Mermaid was about how Jesus died for our sins, which is <laughs> like a real stretch. But uh, definitely, I thought that was true for several years. I was like, oh, yeah, that was in there. They, they made sure to do that. One of the things that often happens is these sort of conservative Christian spaces find things from mainstream pop culture that they can be like, this is a good Christian message. And Groundhog Day definitely came up a number of times, um, especially in the late 90s, as it kind of switched over toward folks saying, you know, oh, this is, um, it's good to engage with pop culture. It's good not to shun it. And Groundhog Day was one of those movies that was in every like hidden Christian movie, hidden Christian messages in mainstream movies, books that like Christian bookstores. And yeah, I think Despite the fact that it's implied that Rita and Phil sleep together at the end, which is usually verboten, um, with whether they have sex or not, we don't know, but they definitely fall asleep in bed together. The rest of the movie is sort of seen as this like moral story, this parable, I guess, about a guy who needs to learn something and gets trapped in a time space where he can do that. And again, you point to A Christmas Carol. That's a very similar story, and that's a story that's also been heavily co-opted by um, Christian culture. So... I think it's an astute point, and I certainly think that other folks who still are living in that world have taken this movie as some sort of a calling card for themselves. When I was reading up on uh, just uh, there are a bunch of you know oral histories or behind the scenes or we talked to so and so ten years later kind of pieces, and Ramus in particular said that after this movie came out, like for years he would hear from people involved in in various churches. You know, Buddhist leaders would come to him and say, "Oh, it's so nice that you made a Buddhist film," and Jewish leaders would come to him and say, "It's so nice that you made a Jewish film," and so forth. There was just sort of a feeling that maybe a, there's a general applied morality that can work with a lot of religious sets. And I find that interesting since it can be so difficult for people who identify as religious to accept the truths that other religions have. But there seems to be something in this movie that's maybe anodyne enough to not offend any particular religious group. But then they, they as a result, they claim it as their own, which I find kind of fascinating. I do think that there is this element of all good, like religious stories from like the medieval era often had a section of like where sin, you know, would happen and sin was not rewarded, but you still got to get the vicarious thrill of, you know, seeing the seven deadly sins carried out on stage or whatever. That's really present in this movie in a way it isn't in a more overtly Christian movie. We get to see Phil be really bad and do really bad things and sometimes in very funny ways before he improves. And like the central idea of all religions is, okay, you do bad things and then you learn from them and you become a better person over time. And I think what makes this movie so strong as a religious metaphor is it acknowledges that we might commit the same sins over and over and over and over again before we realize, you know what, this isn't leading me nowhere. It's just that we don't get like an eternal dream space in which to do that. We just get the one life and maybe you learn like one lesson about how to be a better person like across a decade. So. So here's a question I have for everyone as far as the the morality message of this film. Are we to interpret Phil's escape from the time loop as a result of his cumulative self-improvement or the result of a single act? In this case, maybe not sleeping with Rita, even though she was in the bed with him, you know, and what he wanted was right there and he denied it to himself. Like, I think you could interpret that as being like the single act that helped him escape. Or do you think it's supposed to be like, you know, he reached the right level of goodness and that brought him out? 
I'm literally just realizing that last scene is not ambiguous because I was taught forever as a child that they uh, that they probably had sex, but we were supposed to ignore that because <laughs> it's a Hollywood movie and that sort of stuff happens in a Hollywood movie. And so I've just always been like, you know, I don't think they actually had sex, but it's ambiguous. It's not ambiguous, is it? <laughs> I don't think it is. They, I mean, Harold Ramis apparently was planning on having them wake up not wearing any clothes and was basically told by other people in the film, like, don't do that. You you will ruin the film if you do that. And he seemed to think it was ambiguous, but just the, I don't know, the way they're positioned and the way they talk to each other and then the way Rita kind of implies that like now they can have sex for the first time. I don't think it's all that ambiguous that they did not actually have sex. I was watching it today and was like, you know what? I remember this ending very differently. <laughs> and like, I've seen this movie six, seven, eight times across my life. So, so the consensus is they did not. That's my yeah. consensus. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think they just had a nice sleepover, nice platonic sleepover. <laughs> like you do. They already had one of they had one of those though earlier in the film, right? Where she stays up with him and he's they're flipping the cards into that hat or whatever. I mean, that you know, yeah, he, he fall they fall asleep in that yeah. Or, yeah. scene, right? I don't think sex is even remotely on the table. That time around, like she's she's demonstrably there as a scientific oh, his, experiment, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. That said, like I don't think that his big act of goodness here is not having sex with her when he could. I also remember this film. I don't think I've seen this since the '90s, and I also remembered it ending kind of differently. I remember her being along with him on this tour of the town and seeing all of these good things that he did, as opposed to just sort of seeing the evidence later. Mm-hmm. My understanding of the ending was always. There was not like a single act like, you know, doing the right things in order to make her fall in love with him back that he had basically reached the point of a perfect day. He'd reached the point where if he, you know, was in the time loop for another hundred years, he would never change that day because he helped the maximum number of people. He did the maximum number of right things. He did the things that made him feel good and that benefited everybody else. And he just kind of achieved a Zen perfection. I always thought on some level you you could choose to interpret it as he he does that exact day like hundreds of times if it comes to it. I always thought about it as a lot of different things like uh you know if you're opening a, a safe you got to you got to like I don't know how how all those lo- how are those locks work things drop I don't know how how, how a lock works but <laughs> but in any case in s- several of those things have to drop into place and they all drop into place and the vault opened up so it was like I don't know ready player 1 or something in that respect like you got all the things <laughs> You and your ready all, player all 1 references Scott constantly you got all the things <laughs> Bite your damn evil tongue, Scott Tobias. <laughs> you got you get what I mean, though. He just he just got got all the '80s references all in a row, and uh, and uh, that was enough to uh, redeem him. Well, let me ask you this: I mean, how much is he in need of redemption? Kind of one of the other things that struck me about this, maybe because I was thinking of Scrooge, and in Scrooge they really go out of their way to make that like a harsh and unemotional man who hurts other people, not just without particularly caring, but almost taking a little bit of glee in his ability to harm other people. Phil just about the worst thing he does in the the lead up to the time loop is imply that he thinks he can do better than Pittsburgh and then sexually harass his producer. And the sexual harassment isn't great. I find it kind of hilarious because it's both relatively low key and it's just 
it's a reminder of how differently we think about this kind of thing these days. Because he's just, he's just like, you know, hey, you want to help me with my pelvic tilt? Like he he keeps implying that they're going to sleep together. And she's like, oh, you, teehee. And that very, uh, you know, Simpsons model on the car kind of very practiced at deferring. <laughs> Do you come uh, with the car? <laughs> oh, you, teehee. It's implied that, of course, she deals with this kind of thing all the time. Of course, all attractive women deal with this kind of thing all the time. And it's, you know, it's it's harmless and something that you just sort of defer. And the contrast between that and how we feel about it today, it's like seeing people using giant rotary telephones in old movies. To me, it's just like this is an interesting portrait of a different era. But anyway, all of that said, is Phil really so bad that he needs like the entire karmic uh, justice of the universe to come down on him? I mean, I think he needs humbling. You know, it's it's not that he is an actively bad person in so many ways. It's just that he never considers others before himself. And, you know, as far as a broad moral message to to apply to anything, you know, think of others before yourself is pretty easy to, you know, apply universally. So I think it's less about showing that he is a an actively bad man who actively causes harm in the world, as much as just showing that he is myopic and self-centered. And is that the worst thing you can be? No. But within the story this film is telling, it's the thing he needs to be in order to make the point that the film wants to make. There's this 10-year period of American films that are basically about the U.S. Not really, but like they're made in a country that has won the Cold War and capitalism has solved everything and nothing will ever be bad again. And those movies are, are just so occupied with the idea of how like kind of jerky white guys can become better people <laughs> or become more fully actualized people or whatever. And like, I don't think this movie is, you know like American Beauty or anything. For one thing, it's a much better movie. And for another, like American Beauty's central message is really noxious. But like, it is on a continuum with that movie in terms of like, the idea that the worst possible thing you could be is just kind of like a mild asshole, you know, just like, just like a jerk. And that's really where Bill Murray lived across his career was like, just kind of a jerk, but don't you love him for it? And uh, I think that this is, you know, one of his best performances for the way he very accurately portrays someone who actually like lives that thing of becoming a better person. And he doesn't lose his essential Bill Murray-ness. Like he doesn't become Jim Carrey at the beginning of the Truman show. He is still himself. He's just the best version of himself. And I think that's really a fascinating idea. Doc Hollywood, I guess is another one too. That's remind, reminded me of, if you remember that one with Michael J. Fox kind of crashing into this uh, small town and learning to be uh you know, less of a jerk. I think he's on his way to be a plastic surgeon somewhere and make a ton of money. And uh, being a, being a small town. Don't forget cars. Yeah, and then the cars took it up again, except this time yeah. they're all cars. Oh, that's right. Cars. God, oh my. <laughs> um, yeah, I hadn't even thought about the degree to which there is like an entire parallel subgenre that's this thing, but without the supernatural contrivance, just mundane contrivance. There's a huge tradition of movies going back decades where you know, small towns are always this kind of model of virtue and decency. And then, you know, you get city slickers end up uh, spending some time out in the, well, like, you know, even a film like <laughs> City Slickers. 
<laughs> they end up spending some time out in the, in the sticks and they learn, you know, to be less jerky, less, uh, more patient, uh, more appreciative of the little things of small kindnesses and all those things that small towns are supposed to represent. And I think, but again, I think that idea is, has faded a bit. And then I think we've seen just small towns themselves be victimized and be demolished. <laughs> Uh, by capitalism too and so and so you know if you you go on any road trip across america and get off the freeway and head into any one of any any town and uh and you'll see a a much different picture than you'll get here of uh of a town like punxsutawney i was talking about this film as i was watching it with some friends in a slack and one of them uh lives just a short drive from the town where this was filmed in illinois and she said it's very changed from what you see in the film and beyond just like you know of course things are different it's just um a much emptier place now than this sort of bustling town that's portrayed in the movie where like, it's pretty clear that like this town is still alive beyond the fiction of the film. And now I guess it's, it's just very different. It's a sad thing. It's sort of funny to me in a way that, this movie implies that Puxatani is vibrant and and people filled enough to support a full time insurance salesman. You know, Ned Ryerson seems to be making a, a good career for himself, but like, how many people can you sell insurance? It's it just doesn't seem like a small town kind of gig. Oh, it certainly is. My uncle, you know, he he's lived lived his whole life in uh, a small town outside of Flint, Michigan, and that was his job selling insurance. He he did fine. Did fine for himself. It's a job. This, this film is far more realistic than I had ever realized. <laughs> well, one of the aspects of its small town setting that's interesting to me is it being a setting for romance. And part of that also has to do with the time of year at which we're seeing it. Like February is probably the least romantic month, you know, <laughs> Valentine's Day notwithstanding. But just in terms of like the weather in this part of the country, it's gray, it's wet. There's no you know, Groundhog Day is not a romantic holiday in any sense. And when we first enter the town at the beginning of the movie, we're kind of seeing it through Phil's eyes. And like, yes, it's lively, but it's also just not, I don't find it super appealing in, in the beginning of the film. And I feel like it it's like intentionally framed that way. It's just sort of like gray and blah and just not inspiring. And as the film progresses and as Phil progresses, you know, we start to see these more sort of traditional romantic scenes, you know, the, the lit up gazebo and the, the snowfall and the town dance, and it just becomes much more stars hollowy over the, over the course of the film. And I think I would guess that that is intentional as sort of a reflection of Phil's experience with the town. Well, okay. So among the things that you might not have in a small town, all right, maybe you've got insurance salesmen in a small town. One of the things that surprised me most about this, uh, this revisitation was I had completely forgotten about the side plot with the homeless guy who dies in the alley. That was I when I was watching this film for this particular edition of the podcast, I did not have a Christmas Carol in mind at all. And that was the sequence that suddenly made me realize that that this is the Christmas Carol story, because this movie does get very dark in places like there's there's a suicide montage and there's a great deal of talk about despair and suicide. But all of that is played kind of lightly because it has no consequences. The death of the old man and the way it's treated, just the, the repeated statements like people get old, people die. Like the fact that he he does various things for that old man, but ultimately he can't save him and he disappears from the loop. 
the like sitting him down for a meal or otherwise helping him does not become part of the perfect day, doesn't become part of the loop. And, you know, we can surmise that it's still in there, but ultimately this is something that he can't help. You know, this is his, his low point, his Scrooge realizing that the tiny Tim is dead moment. And it's not out of sync with the rest of the film. It's not an impossible part of the rest of the film, but it does feel dark and grim in a way none of the rest of it does because this is it's outside uh the the ability of of the loop or of karma or of god or whatever's going on in this world to fix there is not a solution that he can come across in one day that's going to fix the life choices or life accidents or whatever has befallen this particular man and it can't fix old age so i'm just i'm wondering how you guys processed that particular plot point and kind of what the movie's saying about it i think the central idea of any religion if we're talking about this as a religious parable is like trying to better one's life so that one can have a better death, whether that's dying in a way that means your life was fulfilling or dying in a way that will get you a better life the next time around or dying in a way that gets you to some better corner of the afterlife. Like that's one of the central ideas behind religion. And because death really doesn't exist within this film, like it becomes, it could be rather weightless without the idea of, here is a character who is always going to die and there's nothing you can do to save him because death still exists to some degree. And without that element, I think the movie would be a little too lightweight and like the actual goodness that Phil accomplishes wouldn't feel important because goodness always has to take place in the face of death. If you're just becoming a better person in a space where you can't die, you can't be hurt, really, all of these things can't really happen, then you you are living in a world that is a fantasy. But as long as death is present, then there are consequences, there are dramatic stakes, there are things that cannot be defeated ultimately. And I do think it's a really key part of why this movie works for me. If, if Phil is there to learn about the fullness of life then the uh, reality of death has to be there i think um i think that's and i'm glad it's present in the movie i mean i'm pleased for other instances where the film you know acknowledges death though it does it more you know in a comic way i guess in his in his series of you know suicide attempts but i, I was happy it was there it's such a touching little thread and it's, it's just another example of the premise of the film paying off so, so uniquely that you could have just this one tiny thread this one part of the loop um, you could focus on it for a little bit and have this almost like short story th that's spun off from the main narrative i think the the stuff with the homeless guy is also just important in terms of phil's growth in terms of making apparent to him that he is not a god, because that is something that he says early, early on in his looping, you know, and it, I think even is it before the looping when he's talking about being a weatherman? And it, maybe I'm, I'm confusing the, the timeline there. But in the situation he's in, he's realizing, you know, the extreme power he has to do things without consequence and to kind of bend reality reality to his will, if only temporarily. And so I think giving him this really sort of intense roadblock to that perception of him as a supernatural being or a god is important in terms of the humbling that, that he uh, endures throughout the film. 
we're running long, as is so often the case, but we, we really can't wrap up without talking at least a little bit about the cast here. We've talked about Murray, but we haven't really touched on Andy McDowell at all. And just, there's so many familiar faces in this um, that it's just kind of amazing to see pop up. It took me a little while to recognize Ramus himself as the neurologist <laughs> that decides uh, Phil needs to see a psychologist. And <laughs> I, it definitely took me a while to recognize Michael Shannon in his very small role. But then I just went back and watched it over and over. It is, it is delightful to see him so larval and to see him doing like such an, an upbeat and, and peppy giddy character given that he's kind of gone into a place where he specializes in these like very dour serious roles it's it's so much fun to see him like like jumping up and down and screaming uh, and it kind of like lays out an entirely different career that he might have had any comments on any of the uh the additional players in this film First of all, I have always had in the back of my brain that Michael Shannon has within him at least one great sitcom <laughs> dad role. Like he could play a sitcom dad and that tension, kind of the Brian Cranston tension between like this darkness, but also like being bubbly. I think Michael Shannon would kill it. I want to see it happen. Um, I, I love yeah. Stephen Tobolowsky in this movie. I think he finds so many variations on annoying guy who thinks you should like be his best friend and you never, you never hate him. You're just kind of like, yeah, I know this guy and I'm very irritated by him, but there's something so open and nakedly emotional about him that like, I, I just, you know, I love Ned. I'd give him a hug. <laughs> you would regret that hug. You know, you would. <laughs> no, yeah, You'd of course. Out of that hug owing him hundreds of dollars a month in insurance. <laughs> it's always nice to see Brian Doyle Murray doing his thing alongside, <laughs> alongside Bill. But, you know, Andy McDowell in this movie, it's a, not the most rewarding role for her. And I think she does a nice job with it, like giving a little bit of shading to Rita. So she's not just this kind of pure ball of, of sweetness and goodness for, for Phil to kind of crash up against until he absorbs some of it for himself. Like, you know, she does have a little bit of, you know, snark, a little bit of you know, she she pushes back against him in her kind of sweet way. But it does feel like she, as both a character and a performance, is just overshadowed by by so much here. And that bumps me out because I, I, I like Andy McDowell, but she feels like her, her performance and the character just feel a little functional in this movie. That is maybe my only real critique of it. And it's not really on her, I don't think. But yeah. I agree with you, and I think I would go further. I feel like the romance is the only aspect of this film that doesn't really fully work for me. I can never get behind Bill Murray as a as a romantic lead, like even Lost in Translation. I'm sorry, like like I know that that's heresy or whatever, but like I, Bill Murray romance has never worked for me on film, and it doesn't work here. So I place the blame for that more on him here than her. But continue with what you're going to say, Tasha. Uh, oh. <laughs> I, I think about it. I think about it. I Think okay. about Bill Murray. I think about it. his whole brand, though, has pretty much always been kind of performative insincerity and being a little bored with the world. And I would think that would be devastating in the sack. Yeah. I, I just, I don't think it would be possible to ever really fully get his attention. And I think he plays reasonably charming here. Like when he's talking to Andy McDowell as she's sleeping and he's talking about like how the second he saw her, he wanted to take her in his arms. 
it's very romantic in a cinematic monologue kind of way. It's a little hard to believe based on who he was when he first met her and just based on who she is, which to my mind is just kind of bland. I mean, they, the screenplay keeps draping these things over her. Like she's she's into uh, French poetry. You know, she's <laughs> she wants to travel the world like she has all of these tick marks of I have a personality and I'm a person kind of thing they get name checked but I mean ultimately she's here as like a nice prize for him to win by performing karmically and I like I just I've never really found her that exciting or interesting as a character. Annie McDowell to me during this period is kind of like the actor equivalent like to like Joe Biden basically in the sense that like <laughs> in the sense like, like you, you just want her to get through a performance without any gaffes <laughs> Right. <laughs> and so and so she gets through this performance without any of the gaffes that occasionally come in like, you know, shortcuts and in uh in sex lies of videotape, which she's great in and in uh four weddings and a funeral. Um there's always one moment in those movies where it's like, Oh boy. It's a you know, she's very very likable, like Joe Biden, also gaff prone. <laughs> uh so uh so uh in any case, yeah, she's sexy Joe Biden in this film. <laughs> Wow, I can't think of a better leave line for this episode than Andy McDowell is sexy Joe Biden. I'm just going to say uh, we're we're going to be back in the second half of this episode talking about Kristen Milioti in Palm Springs and how these two movies compare. And I think that ends up being one of the elements that most distinguishes uh, these two movies from each other. But that's all a little down the road. Uh, for the moment, we're going to wrap up our discussion of Groundhog Day and get into some feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Here's an important one from Jerome, who says he's a secondary school film studies teacher in the UK, and that he recommends our podcasts to his students as an example of how to have a meaningful discussion while disagreeing with each other respectfully. Thank you, Jerome. We appreciate it. But he also has a question for us. Emily, would you read this one for us? Sure. Jerome writes, I have noticed that little airtime in your discussions is given to issues of representation. Often there might be a mention of a poorly written female character or the absence of any people of color, but most of the time these points are left unpacked. The recent increased awareness of black and trans rights has reinforced how important it is to interrogate art for the way it represents minority groups. Film academia has long done this, but I've noticed these conversations moving more and more into mainstream audience responses. Film critics could really help promote these issues, but it just doesn't seem to be a priority in the way that many critics tend to respond to film. I would be interested in your comments. What role does matter of representation play in a film critic's response to a film? And how personally do you respond to the challenge of taking more notice of representation? Well, we do. I, I guess we didn't really point out any representation issues in Groundhog Day, did we? Well, it's, very, it's a very, it's a very I white mean, town. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you did, you did uh, point out the poorly written female character, as, you know. So we, we always gotta, gotta mm -hmm. do that. Well, I'll say this. I, I mean, Jerome specifically takes us to task for not unpacking uh, representational lacks more, and sometimes there's just not a lot to unpack. If a film does bring in a, a minority group character and does it poorly or stereotypically, there's something to unpack there. If we're going to talk about the old guard on one of our Patreon episodes, there's a ton to unpack there in terms of 
what's included and how those characters are represented and what the director, Gina Prince-Bythe, would wanted to do with them that was different than how she had seen specifically Black characters used in other film. There's a lot to unpack there. There's nothing to unpack in Groundhog Day. There's just an absence. And we can certainly talk about the fact that the small town in Pennsylvania in the 1980s pretty much has virtually no uh, characters of color. But once you've made that statement, it starts to sound predictable. You know, the 80s were not just as they were not a great time for the inner lives of women on film or for female comedians, uh, as we kind of noted earlier, they weren't a good time for gay representation or people of color representation or trans representation. And there's not much that we can say about that that isn't already very well known. We can certainly point out in every film that we cover. And once again, we have no people of color in this movie, uh, but it's just the same thing over and over. I, I think it's mostly something you want to discuss when there's something egregious. You know, we, we did spend a little time talking about the trans character at the end of Mighty Wind because it was such an, an awkward thing treated as a gag. But in cases where there just is no character of a minority in the film, I'm not sure what we can say that's meaningful. Wait, there was a movie where a trans <laughs> character's existence was treated as an awkward I, gag? I know, what? it's hard to believe. Yeah, I can't believe that the president didn't intervene <laughs> to say that was illegal. I did um, I did also suggest everyone watch Disclosure after that episode so, on, on Netflix. So, you know, there's your unpacking. Uh, the, Michael, the Michael Douglas? Uh, no, <laughs> no Scott, the, no! <laughs> that's the only... <laughs> I I had watching this movie and we, as we were discussing it, I was like, well, should I mention that Groundhog Day takes place in a very, you know, cis heteronormative universe? And then I was like, no, because that's 1993 Hollywood. Like I don't as 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 a trans woman, I don't like necessarily think that's great, but also like it was made within the system it was made in. And like if it had included one gay couple you know, it would not have been seen as quote unquote family friendly at the time. Like now, if you make a movie like this, you you want to have, you know, some sort of queer representation. You probably want to have people of color in there. And we'll talk about how Palm Springs deals with all of that. But in 1993 Hollywood, these sorts of movies were not including those elements. And there's a lot of problems with that. And there are a lot of unexamined uh, biases and, um, you know, ways that the world tilts uh, structural problems that the world is built atop, and particularly the United States and the film industry are built atop. But at a certain point, talking about them within Groundhog Day is just, you know, not, it's going to be all we talk about, and it's going to apply to every movie made at that time. And the other thing I would say is, um, I certainly feel comfortable discussing uh, representation of women on screen, representation of uh, trans people on screen. I don't always feel comfortable talking about mm -hmm. representation of people of color as an extremely white person. I can say it doesn't exist and it should exist, but it's hard for me. I, I don't want to wade into something and be like, well, this is a great portrayal of X, you know, American community when I have no idea. That can be just as offensive in the end as saying nothing. And I think as professional critics, we've all figured out where our lines are. But this is in particular an issue I think it's worth pointing to without necessarily always delving into it, because as white Americans, we can struggle with that. Scott, I just I, I do actually want to call you out on this just a little bit. Okay. Um, even even leaving aside uh, the issues of uh, gay or, or trans or people of color characters, 
we spend a lot of time on this podcast dissecting women's roles. You know, Genevieve and I, we're, we're pretty tuned into the many, many ways American cinema disappoints us in terms of female roles. And do you have that same sense of, as a critic, it's harder for you to feel comfortable talking about that in the same way it may be uncomfortable for some of us very white folks to talk about whether a given uh, portrayal of a, a Black character feels real or authentic or, or meaningful or important? How I feel about women's roles? About talking that way about women's roles, specifically about the representational aspects of them. Oh, I don't know. I mean, God. I... You just let us do the talking. <laughs> you just sit there and take it like a man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 I do. I, I don't know. I mean, I, um, gosh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I experience the world from my, you know, my perspective, whatever that, you know, <laughs> this white dude. And and then I try to empathize with uh, the perspective of others. I mean, I think that's, that's, a, that's about as the best I can do. I don't know personally what it's like to be anything other than the type of person that I am, right? Right. But I mean, the whole point of cinema, I mean, kind of like famously, according to Roger, sure. is as an empathy machine, like inviting you into all of these other perspectives. Yes. But I mean, you have to talk about that as a critic. Yes. Yeah, I, I think I frequently. do, don't I? Yeah, yeah I, I would feel, say so. I feel fine about it. Do, do I do okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you feel so fine about it, why are you looking for No, me? I don't know. I don't know. It's hard. He's remembering I, I the MASH discussion. Oh, I mean, right. I'm yeah, that's always, true. always thinking about Oh, my the God, discussion. the MASH discussion. That is true. I will tell you, on Letterboxd, I have a review of MASH that touches a little on the conversation we had in that episode. <laughs> uh -huh. And I still, it's been so long, and I still occasionally, out of the blue, get shut up bitch uh, style what? Uh, comments on that. No. Uh, just, just basically, like, like angry sexist but, but comments. Based on our podcast or just based on what you wrote on the Letterboxd? Uh, based, based on what I wrote on the Letterboxd, which was very tame compared to uh, some of things i said on that podcast episode yeah i mean I, I don't know i mean i think that was a whole discussion about whether the film itself was a misogynist film or whether it was reflecting a certain attitudes of the time right sure yeah but i mean that's that's what we're talking about in terms that of was when we that's where where the disagreement sort of started you know started for us to sort of bring it back to jerome's question and you know why we don't regularly unpack these questions on the podcast. I think that representation is something that is both easier and more useful to discuss in the cumulative, like looking over a large swath of films or a time period or a, a certain type of film. And the conversations we have on this podcast are much more focused and isolated on single films and the connections between them. So while you know, a question of representation can come up within those discussions. I think there's only so far that we can, to use Jerome's term, unpack that without it sprawling out into the wider world of film and the film industry and film criticism. And it just sort of takes us further and further away from sort of the guiding principle of, of this podcast. And you know, that's that's just sort of the way we, we built it, you know, and we can do our best to sort of nod to these conversations. But for, you know, the reasons we've, we've discussed, I don't think that we are necessarily the best equipped to really delve into them deeply here. Well, 
that is why we appreciate questions like this, which do give us the yeah. opportunity to do a little digging and do a little self-examination. I mean, I think all of white America <laughs> can use a little more self-examination and a little more awareness and that this is a good thing. And I'm certainly trying to be more aware of it, especially just in the films that I choose to watch on my downtime. There's a, a huge wealth out there of historical films by black filmmakers and about black characters that I'm slowly trying to educate myself on a little better. And that's been a fun project. Yeah. I've been watching, I've been just watching a ton of films by black filmmakers over the last few months. I mean, thanks to Criterion a lot for a lot of it's things like uh cane river and losing ground and watermelon woman and daughters of the dust and all those sorts of things. Good stuff. Yeah, Criterion making so many of those films free streaming online, I think, has been a real boon that we haven't talked enough about and that, that people should really take advantage of while they have the chance. Definitely. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll head straight back into the loop with Palm Springs, another comedy about an infinitely relived day. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then... Remember, don't drive angry. Don't drive angry. And if you do have to drive angry, don't do it in a quarry. Wake up!